everybody. This is the Mark Riley Show. My name is Mark Riley. Hope everyone is uh, getting through the heat okay. Uh, I had a little bit of a computer glitch there before we started, but we're up and running, as it were. And uh, we got a few stories for you this evening. Some of them are just a bit irritating, but that's the way of the world, right? Story number one. Upstate groups rally for secession. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is upstate New York groups are rallying for secession. Now, they're rallying for secession in Alabama, too, but they had a rally uh, this past weekend, and I think they said 12 people showed up. So uh, Alabama's secession, I guess wanting to refight the Civil War or something, isn't going as well as they might have hoped. But... Uh, these upstate people, and uh, this is something that uh, has been brewing apparently for a while. Uh, they had a bunch of people, about 100 people, showed up in Chenango County for a meeting about secession. Uh, and their theory is that they want upstate New York, that is New York above Rockland and Westchester counties, to be a separate entity. They're not talking necessarily about a state, but they are talking about a separate entity. He wants to separate, uh, he is John Bergener Jr., who apparently is leading the secession thing. Uh, he wants to actually uh, create a separate autonomous region in upstate New York called New Amsterdam. And New York City, of course, would be downstate or New York, I guess, would be downstate. And it would uh, be from the northern border, borders of Westchester and Rockland County. Says John Bergener, about two, quote, about two-thirds of the people wanted to provide good-paying jobs upstate. Then there are other reasons for various groups that want it, too. There's one uh, group called SCOPE, Shooters Committee on Political Education, um, and this was the main organizer of Sunday's rally. There are a gun rights group that says the SAFE Act, which is now, by the way, law, is uh, doing them wrong. Somehow, I guess uh, so any restrictions on their guns is problematic for these upstate folks. There are other people who are in favor of fracking. And of course, fracking would be taking place in upstate New York. And they feel hard done by the notion that the state, Governor Andrew Cuomo, has imposed a moratorium. Apparently a moratorium, uh, I won't say for good, but for now, on hydrofracking. And, of course, a lot of downstate people aren't really cool with hydrofracking. Now, in order for New Amsterdam to become a state, which is why I think maybe they're not trying to make it a state. Um, it would need state legislative and congressional approval. Now, there's another alternative here, and that is that part of New York wanted to be absorbed by another state. 
some towns are, are lobbying to become part of the state of Pennsylvania. Both state legislatures would have to agree, and Congress would have to ratify the decision. Now, I understand, having been upstate a few times in my life, I understand why some people in upstate New York feel hard done by the relationship between upstate and downstate. However, no less a personage than E.J. McMahon of the Empire Center and the Fiscal Policy Institute's Ron Deutsch. Now, the Empire Center is a right-wing group. Fiscal Policy Institute is a left-wing group. They both pointed to a study that was done by the Rockefeller Institute four years ago that says that New York City and downstate suburbs both give New York State more in revenues than the state spends on these regions. New York City contributes 45.1% of the state's revenue, while the state spends 40% of its expenditures on New York City. Compare that to part of the state, uh, parts of the state outside the metropolitan reach, upstate New York, for example. It's paid in 20, it pays in 23.8% of the state's revenues, while accepting 35.2% of the state's expenditures. So upstate may feel hard done, but the fact of the matter is they get a whole heck of a lot more back from the state than they put in, while New York puts in a whole heck of a lot more than it gets back. Now, I know some New York City residents, <laughs> you know, when I first heard about this, I had to, I have to say I included myself in this group. So, ah, if you want to you separate? Fine. Go ahead. Separate. Become autonomous. And uh, then perhaps you'll come crying back in a few years um, because you're going to go under financially. All those good-paying jobs are not going to flock to upstate New York because it's no longer attached to New York City. That's ridiculous. That's absurd. But that seems to be what they're arguing. Of course, the other part of it is they, they want to be able to have their guns and they want to be able to frack. Well, you can't have everything that you want. And I'm not quite sure that those upstate New York communities that want to merge with Pennsylvania, I'm not sure Pennsylvania is down, to tell you the truth, because it's not like those upstate southern tier communities are some sort of economic engine that's going to benefit their state. But, hey, you know, you can dream. You can definitely dream. Now, Moving on to another story, I, I uh, heard uh, the previous program mention the guy that got shot with his hands up in Texas. The latest incident by a cop, latest incident of police violence against an unarmed individual. And, of course, continuing the need for Black Lives Matter. And certainly we've discussed police black community relations many, many times. I've done it literally hundreds of times, going back now three, almost four decades. But, you know, when somebody does something good, when a cop does something good for somebody, we don't always recognize it. We don't always acknowledge it. So I'm going to acknowledge it here because it actually did take place. A hungry, homeless mother who said she was a victim of domestic violence took her one-year-old daughter to the lobby of a Maryland police department station last week because she had nowhere else to go. Now, this is in Prince George's County, 
Maryland. Corporal Shay Atkinson apparently felt bad about this, so bad, in fact, that he rented the woman and her child a hotel room and bought them food and drinks, and it was documented by one of Atkinson's superiors and shared on Facebook. Um, as of Monday afternoon, PG County's police department post had garnered 14,000 likes and 3,500 shares. He first saw the homeless woman, did Corporal Atkinson, on Wednesday morning, last Wednesday, sitting in the lobby of the, of the District 1 station in Hyattsville. She had been staying at a homeless shelter but had to leave for an unidentified reason. Atkinson tried getting a distant relative to pick them up and take them in. The relative initially agreed, but on Thursday morning, Atkinson found the mother and daughter still stuck in the lobby. The relative wouldn't be able to come for at least another day, and it had already been two days since the woman and her daughter had eaten. So this police officer, Corporal Shea Atkinson, went out and rented a room for him with his own money, by the way. Found the child a car seat, put it in his cruiser in order to uh, safely transport the girl to the hotel, a little one-year-old. Bought him food and drinks. Shay Atkinson, and, you know, he's not the only good cop in America, by the way. Uh, he said he didn't think his involvement was a big deal. I had the extra money. What would it hurt just to put them up for a night and make them feel safe? Apparently... After one night at the hotel, the mother and daughter were finally able to meet up with relatives. So that's a, a feel-good story about cops. It does not negate police violence against unarmed African Americans in any way, shape, or form. But sometimes you just have to say, you know, not all cops are bad people. And not all cops will oppress, oppress you at the drop of a hat. So hats off for Corporal Shea Atkinson for a random act of kindness. Now, I don't know how many of you know the name Kim Davis. Many of you should. Before just the last little while, Kim Davis was a pretty anonymous fixture. She was behind the, county of a, uh, behind the counter of a county clerk's office in Kentucky. Mild-mannered woman. She took care of auto tag renewals, lien releases, land records, and marriage certificates. Well, now she is a celebrity, is Kim Davis. Kim Davis is the woman who chose not to grant, not to issue licenses, marriage licenses, to same-sex couples. Now, we all know, I think, why she chose not to do that. But the fact of the matter is, all the way to the United States Supreme Court, she was told she had to. But she still won't. And her obstinance, of course, has made her celebrity among right-wing groups because she says that God has told her. <laughs> when somebody asked her why she wasn't issue a license. She said she was acting on God's authority. Now, nobody knows what's next for this woman. I can tell you what I would think is next. She is, in fact, an elected official. She was elected to this post, this county clerk. If it was up to me, 
since you can't summarily fire an elected official, I guess, I would think the next step would be impeachment. Immediately. Impeachment. Fire her. Get rid of her. If she's going to thumb her nose at a ruling of the United States Supreme Court, forget about it. Now, in the interest of fairness, I will quote Kim Davis as to her reasoning for this. Quote, I owe my life to Jesus Christ, who loves me and gave his life for me. This was issued by a statement she issued by the Liberty Council, conservative group that's representing her in federal court. Quote, to issue a marriage license which conflicts with God's definition of a marriage with my name affixed to the certificate would violate my conscience. It is not a light issue for me. It is a heaven or hell decision, unquote. Okay, fine. Quit. Do the honorable thing and quit. If your conscience won't let you do your job, find another job. But no. Kim Davis thinks that she and apparently others across the country who feel the same way, they feel empowered to deny these licenses, legal marriage documents, despite court rulings. Because the federal court ruled against her. The Supreme Court said, nah, forget it. So it appears as though there are some options in terms of compelling her either to do her job, they can fine her, which might be a little problematic for her if she doesn't have the money to pay, or they could start to take steps to remove her from office. I say both. Do both. Fine her and take steps to remove her from office. You know, people think that they have some God-given right to exercise their alleged religious conscience when it comes to something that is a legal exercise. I repeat, a legal exercise. So why does she feel empowered like this? And here's the real question about why she should feel empowered like this. The woman has been married four different times. Twice to the same person, no less. Now, the hypocrisy in that should be obvious, but she's she's got a way around it. She had a religious awakening, which occurred about four years ago. So apparently because her marriages took place, at least most of them took place before her religious awakening, her awakening wiped her slate clean. She's not a hypocrite. Because now she's found God. Now, at the risk of sounding cavalier about this, people have religious conversions all the time. All right. People on death row have religious conversions. I haven't heard of all that many religious conversions that have spared people on death row, which, by the way, I unalterably oppose the death penalty. But I have not heard about religious conversions causing parole boards or other authorities 
to say, okay, well, we're not going to execute you. But Kim Davis is not charged with murder. We should be clear about that. But she is a hypocrite. It's as simple as that. Anybody that sits up and says, after being married four times, that her conscience, her religious conscience, won't allow her to issue same uh, marriage licenses to same-sex couples, is a hypocrite. Now, you know, you can, you can find all sorts of pretzel logic to rationalize how you managed to have this come out your mouth, but that's okay. She won, by the way, in her last Democratic primary last year, she won by 23 votes. She then ran against a Republican, and, uh, you know, managed to uh, apparently gain election against this Republican. She was elected with 53% of the vote in the general election. She said, quote, uh, because her mother-in-law had asked as a dying wish, I wonder which mother-in-law this was, (laughs) since she's got three, that she attend church. I don't know, she probably wasn't going that often beforehand. But, quote, there I heard a message of grace and forgiveness and surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. I am not perfect, no one is, but I am forgiven, and I love my Lord and must be obedient to him and the word of God. That's fine. That's a, There's no problem with that. That's called religious freedom. She's joined, by the way, the <clears throat> Solid Rock apostolic church uh i don't know exactly you know what god told her to do but apparently her church seems to be behind her on this and you know she she's done some good things she held classes for female detainees at local jail but On a Facebook page set up by supporters, detractors have repeatedly mentioned her numerous marriages in disparaging postings. Quote, way to keep the sanctity of marriage flying there, according to one post. Family members say she's received death threats. She's, by the way, on her second marriage to her current husband, Joe Davis. Other marriage certificates filed in Rowan County, Kentucky, show she was married in 2007 to a construction worker named Thomas McIntyre Jr., and in 1984 to a store clerk named Dwayne Wallace. So I don't know how this is going to resolve itself. As far as I'm concerned, I know how it should resolve itself. Uh, You know, some people say she's a hero. She's standing strong against the gays, and I agree with them. The Bible says husband and wife, not two women and not two stupid men. This world has become so sick that it is ruining our young generation, unquote. You can't be an officer of local authority and have your views impede your ability to do your job. You can't do that. And like I said, she's been slapped down by the all the way up to the Supreme Court, all the way to the Supreme Court. 
But be that as it may, keep listening for Kim Davis. I'm sure you're going to hear more about her. A victory for President Obama. I know Harriet's going to hate this. Harriet from Bayside, my good friend. But Senator Barbara Mikulski announced today she's supporting the international agreement with Iran regarding its nuclear capabilities. By so doing, Senator Mikulski, a Democrat from Maryland, gives the Obama administration a veto override proof list of 34 Senate supporters, all of which come from the Democratic caucus. Says Senator Barbara Mikulski, who I've always admired. She's been in the Senate for a long time. I think she's getting ready to leave, as a matter of fact. Quote, no deal is perfect, especially one negotiated with the Iranian regime. I have concluded that this joint comprehensive plan of action is the best option available to block Iran from having a nuclear bomb. For these reasons, I will vote in favor of this deal. However, Congress must also reaffirm our commitment to the safety and security of Israel. The other senator in Maryland, Ben Cardin, hasn't declared which way he's going. Together with Republican Senator Bob Corker, Cardin was instrumental in pushing congressional approval of the Nuclear Agreement Review Act last spring. With that, Congress authorized itself to give a thumbs up or down on any nuclear agreement with Iran. But now it doesn't matter what Ben Cardin decides, because President Obama has won on Iran. Early this morning, before Senator Mikulski announced, he was short one vote. Well, he got his one vote. And Republicans, I'm sure, are going to stomp up and down and argue. And the interesting thing is, President Obama got this victory despite huge amounts of money that were spent on ads, and mailers, etc., opposing the agreement. And some prominent senators, including Chuck Schumer of New York, said they'd vote against it. But he won anyway. I think this is good news. I think this agreement, I think Senator Mikulski's right. This is one way to see to it, given the options involved, one way to see to it that Iran doesn't develop a nuclear weapon. It seems as though many places on Earth don't want them to have one. So it appears, again, and, and you know, Netanyahu and, you know, his folks in Israel, his supporters, are probably going to be very upset about this. They're going to say this is going to eventually give Iran the ability to get nukes, and Iran will aim the nukes at Israel. I've talked about that in the past. I don't think the Iranians are crazy or stupid enough to develop a nuclear weapon to use against Israel. I don't think they're that stupid. They know going in what using a nuclear weapon against Israel would do for their country, which would be too horrible for most Iranians to contemplate, in my judgment. So, a victory for President Obama, courtesy of Senator Barbara Mikulski. Our phone number is 877-874-4888. We've got a bunch of other stuff to talk about. And we're going to talk about the mayor of New York City, Bill de Blasio, a man who seems possessed 
of the worst sense of timing and the worst sense of optics that I have seen in a very, very long time. Now, in the middle of July, which is not that long ago, party people, mid-July, amid the outcry over homelessness, which was, to be honest, driven in part by the tabloid papers in this town who hate his guts. But de Blasio said, homelessness is not going up, thank God. Well, now it seems he's been pushed to act. So, yes, there is a crisis. And I, I got to tell you, if you walk around the streets of this city, and I'm not just talking about people who are asking for money saying they're homeless. You can see, especially during the summer, during these months, you can see the homeless on the streets of New York. And the numbers have, in fact, gone up and then have leveled off. I believe in December, the number had reached an all-time high. And it's receded since then. Record high. More than 60,000 homeless adults and children. They were sleeping in shelters, according to a daily count. As of Monday, the number had dropped to 56,761. Ladies and gentlemen, that's 56,731 people too many. Nobody should be homeless in the city of New York. And I know that's a tall order and you have to, you know, it takes a lot of policy decisions. It takes some tough choices. But nobody, nobody in this city should be homeless, period. Now, here's the thing that's going to make this very difficult for the mayor. The person that was in charge of dealing with the homeless problem, Lillian Barrios Paoli, quit like 48 hours ago or so. She said, uh, There's no magic bullet for homelessness. And she said to the administration's credit, it succeeded in moving more than 15,000 people out of shelters and into permanent housing in the past year. That's good. And she said the city should see results as more affordable housing is created. Now, affordable housing in this town has become a quagmire for Mayor de Blasio. It's become, to an extent, an optical quagmire. In other words, he talks about it. He says he's trying to do something about it. But the optics say that it's not happening fast enough. And there are obstacles that he doesn't talk about to building more affordable housing. And as I've mentioned on this program before, the person responsible, the mayor responsible, for building more affordable housing than any mayor before or since, say what you will about his politics, was Ed Koch. Ed Koch built more affordable housing than any mayor before or since. That's something that's deep to contemplate, considering you had Dave Dinkins, you had Rudy Giuliani, you had Mike Bloomberg, and now you got Bill de Blasio. Since Ed Koch. Now, I'm not here to say that Bill de Blasio was not well-intentioned. 
in terms of dealing with the homeless problem and dealing with affordable housing, because they do, in fact, go hand in hand. But there seems to be, what do they call it, a slip of the lip, (laughs) whatever, between what he says and what is actually happening on the ground. And these optical problems that the mayor had, I I think uh, another example of the optical problem was the whole Denudis thing, which seems to have faded from public view the minute the tabloids decided to stop writing editorials about it. The women that were body painted topless and walking around Times Square and posing with tourists and others for tips. You know, that was for like a week and a half, the top story in the city of New York. Never should have been. And my good friend Nick Powell wrote a very trenchant piece in City and State about the fact that the mayor, while trying to figure out if he's going to get rid of pedestrian plazas and other to have certain areas declared parkland so he could get rid of the denudas, when really the issue is homelessness. And that is something that the administration is going to have to come to grips with. It's 631, 29 minutes before the hour of 7 o'clock. This is the Mark Riley Show. I am he, 877-874-4888. 877-874-4888. Whatever may be on you. You don't have to talk about the stuff I've talked about up until now. These are just my ideas about stories that are important. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back. We've got more stories to talk about, including the upcoming movie, Concussion. And whether or not Sony Pictures caved to the NFL in changing parts of the movie that they might have found offensive. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Join the movement at PRN.FM, your best source for progressive programming. The story behind the story, your story, my story, is all in the mix on Lead Stories right here on PRN.FM. This is Utrice Lead inviting you to share your thoughts and opinions and expand your knowledge about critical issues of the day, Monday through Friday, right after Gary Knowles' show. Listen live to a broadcast or get Lead Stories whenever you want from PRN's archive. You can even rate the show on iTunes. Now pass the word. Tell this story to everyone you know. The Progressive Radio Network is moving forward, and we hope you're coming with us. P-R-N. Progressive Radio Network. Seven minutes before the hour of seven o'clock. 
This is the Mark Riley Show. I'm Mark Riley. So good to hear my good friend, Utrice Lead, who's on prn.fm each and every weekday at 1 p.m. I listen to her whenever I get the chance. I know Utrice, God, it's got to be at least 30 years uh, from when she was here in New York. And the work she does is important, important work. We don't always deal with the same stories. We don't always uh, necessarily agree on everything. But Utrees is well worth listening to if you have the time. Now, this would ordinarily be a sports story, and you know, every now and then we touch on sports stories. But this is more a story about power, a story about the entertainment business, and a story about professional sports, specifically the National Football League. It appears as though Sony Pictures, which, by the way, does not have any significant business ties to the National Football League. But apparently it softened some points in the new movie Concussion that it might have made against the NFL. In dozens of studio emails unearthed by hackers and posted, by the way, on WikiLeaks, Sony executives, the director Peter Landisman, and representatives of... Mr. Smith, that would be Will Smith, the star of the program, discussed how to avoid antagonizing the NFL by altering the script and marketing of the film more as a whistleblower story rather than a condemnation of football or the NFL. Now, this is, to me, fascinating because it may, you know, and, and I guess the emails, as you delve into them, will probably expose the extent to which the NFL approached Sony once they knew they were making the film. It wouldn't be the first time. That is for sure. Uh, According to Sony, this is the president of domestic marketing at Sony Pictures, Will Will Smith is not anti-football and isn't planning to be a spokesman for what football should be or shouldn't be, but rather is an actor taking on an exciting challenge. We'll develop messaging with the help of the NFL, with the help of NFL consultants to ensure that we are telling a dramatic story and not kicking the hornet's nest. The hornet's nest, of course, being the $9 billion industry that is the National Football League. Now, there have been story, story after, there has been story after story after story of football players, who've committed suicide, football players who have had lifelong and life-crippling industry, um, industry, injuries as a result of the contact that is a way of life in the National Football League. Now, I'm not one to say, you know, ban football or, you know, change it so it's not what it is. It is, to an extent, the sports eggplant that ate America. Tomorrow night, we'll commence the final preseason game or preseason games in the NFL. And people will watch. And once the season starts in about two weeks or so, people will sit in front of their television sets or at sports bars over chicken wings all afternoon watching professional football. 
it has become, in its own way, a uh, a rite of passage for younger people. Maybe not to play, but certainly to watch the game, to be familiar with the game. I think it plays a role that at one time was played by baseball in this country. It is a way to Americanize people who come to this country. It's a way for people to vent. And, you know, the fanaticism. I have a cousin on the West Coast who goes to every, and and she's a woman, by the way, goes to every game that the Oakland Raiders play. And I didn't even know she was a Raider fan. I've been a Raider fan since 1968. She goes. She went to Minnesota to watch an exhibition game. She goes to uh, the stadium that the Raiders play in. And forgive me, I can't remember which one it is, but she is rabid in her support of the Raiders. And people who are fans of the game are not going to want to see it diluted too much. It's going through its own changes. But those changes have to do with the way the game is played and the rules that have been put in place to protect some of the marquee players, namely the quarterbacks in the National Football League. But these emails apparently show that the people making the movie Concussion, which, by the way, debuts, I think, right around Christmas, but the trailer came out earlier this week, uh, the movie company has shown a uh, sincere concern about offending the National Football League or incurring the National Football League's rep. And as I said, it's not the first time this has happened. Now, the film is about the doctor. Will Smith plays this doctor, Dr. Omalu. He's the one who developed the term CTE, chronic traumatic encephalitis philosophy, and that is the continuing damage that's done to the brain by hitting it too hard, which you do. You know, you can have helmets for days, but anybody that's ever had a helmet-on-helmet collision, which I think is outlawed in the NFL now, but a helmet-on-helmet collision is a frightening thing to see. Many of the collisions, these guys that are playing on these offensive and defensive lines, these guys weigh, on average, 300 pounds. When I was a kid, you know, the the offensive and defensive line were 225, 230, maybe 250 if they were big. They're now 300 pounds. You got guys 360 playing this game. And they're faced off against... 300-pound people on the other side of that line. And their job is to get these other people out of the way. And collisions are how they do so, (laughs) okay? It's very simple. I mean, I I don't want to talk out of school, and I don't want people to think, you know, think I'm trying to, you know, be condescending in describing this. But it is a violent, brutal game. And the people that play it best are to an extent, the most violent and the most brutal. Now, you know, Sony, for its part, will say, hey, we didn't do anything. We made some small changes so that the NFL cannot say 
that we're dogging them out or that we're subjecting them to some form of criticism. Well, the fact of the matter is that the NFL agreed to pay hundreds of millions of dollars to settle a lawsuit brought by 5,000 retired football players who accused the league of deliberately hiding the dangers of concussions. They're saying they're trying to, you know, get, uh, you know, do the right thing. They put money into research about concussions, et cetera. But if you look at the trailer, the trailer, I mean, even if it was watered down, makes it seem as though the NFL questioned Dr. Omalu's work and really was trying to discredit him and discredit CTE. Now, two years ago, the NFL complained to ESPN executives about a documentary called League of Denial. League of Denial was produced by ESPN in conjunction with Frontline, you know, the PBS series. And it detailed the league's response to the dangers of head trauma. ESPN, in response, stopped working on the project with Frontline. Frontline later broadcasted anyway. I mean, you know, what are they going to do? They're not going to just sit there and spend all that money and not have anything take place. In 2004, the NFL complained to the chief executive of the Walt Disney Company about a hard-hitting television series on ESPN that delivered an unsavory description of professional football players. The show ended after a single season. Now, these emails are damaging. They're damaging to Sony, and they're a glancing blow to the NFL, okay? Because my guess is, and this is just a guess, but my guess is most people who follow professional football could care less about whatever this movie exposes. They want their football. And no matter what this movie exposes, they're going to get their football. The NFL will continue to play. The, the thing that they're worried about, the danger in all this talk about concussions and brain damage, etc., is that parents will not let their kids start playing football. That's what the NFL is worried about. The gene pool of football players that start out as kids and who make it all the way to the pros may be shrunken somehow by parental concerns about the dangers of playing this game. And that may be a very, very legitimate concern. But you know what? Even if they don't play it, they will watch it. It is much a part of the culture as Facebook or Reddit or any of the other things that have been clutched to the bosom of teenagers and millennials. So don't expect football to change much as a result of this, but it just goes to show the power that the National Football League has. And you could ask the question, is that power too much power? Speaking of power, there was a power failure on the Long Island Railroad this morning. Trains going in and out of Penn Station were suspended for more than an hour. That, of course, snarl service for thousands of commuters. 
the Port Washington branch was shut down. It's all, it's all, I don't know if it's all completely back to normal, but all the trains are running, supposedly, some with delays. It shut down about 8 o'clock. The Port Washington branch, for those of you who don't know, and that's many of you because we go all over the place, but the Port Washington branch is one of the main mass transit routes to the U.S. Open Tennis Tournament in Queens. For hours before that, starting at about 5 in the morning, trains across Long Island were being canceled or held east of the East River Tunnels because that power failure caused signal problems. And the last thing they wanted to have happen was a train collision or derailment as a result of not having proper signaling. Now, ordinarily, this would just be a local story and people would be all pissed off and you know, how dare you do this? All well and good. But it points out, along, by the way, with what happened to New Jersey Transit not that long ago, it points out what happens when you don't take care of your infrastructure, your mass transit infrastructure. When you do this kind of catch-as-catch-can maintenance and the sort of, you know, well, we'll fix it if something goes wrong with it attitude that seems to be the norm for mass transit in this region, whether it's the Hudson River tunnels or whatever. And I'm sure some of the people that ride the Long Island Railroad were laughing up their sleeves when they heard about the problem New Jersey Transit has had, what was that, about a month ago. So now they're getting a taste of what New Jersey transit commuters had to go through. Stuck on trains, late for appointments, late for work, the whole nine. But the bottom line here is that the infrastructure on both these rail lines, which together handle a humongous number of people, the transit infrastructure stinks. It's old. And given these kinds of situations, you have to say dysfunctional. And there's no excuse for it. The question that I have to ask, I don't know about you, but I have to ask, who is to be held accountable for this? Do you hold the governors of New York and New Jersey and other places accountable for the fact that they can't get their act together to get the work done, to make these situations reliable. And I know the MTA will issue a statement, well, you know, it doesn't happen that often, and we're really sorry. But see, when the weather gets hot, or for that matter, when the weather gets cold, you know, you almost can count on massive, massive delays. And, you know, I mean, the New York Times is starting to understand it is about infrastructure or lack of saying. And sooner or later, the only way it's going to change is if somebody has to pay, whether it's politicians or agency heads or whomever. The only way that this is going to change for the better for commuters And for, you know, the businesses that exist in the city, because these suburban commuter lines 
feed huge numbers of people into Manhattan. It's no accident they both terminate at Penn Station. And you, you, you know, you can't, you can't keep doing this. You can't keep saying sorry. You cannot act as though these things are somebody else's fault. When it happened in Jersey, New Jersey Transit blamed Amtrak. Amtrak blamed the lack of funding and then blamed New Jersey Transit. Everybody points fingers, but nobody wants to do the work. And the work involves having the political will to find the money to get these infrastructure situations done. Now, if you travel in the tri-state area, you will see a myriad, a myriad of road projects. Lanes closed, this one's closed, that one's closed. For extended periods of time, sometimes up to a year, while they fix the roads. So how come that doesn't happen for mass transit? Maybe it does, and I'm just not aware of it. Or maybe it does, and people just aren't being told. But the bottom line is, the work needs to be done. And if it doesn't get done, somebody, somebody, somewhere needs to pay. Or at least give an explanation to the public as to why the work is not getting done. Going down to Baltimore, the hearing, the first hearing, in the case of the police officers, I believe it's six of them all together, charged in the death of Freddie Gray, you may remember that. It was a huge, huge story, rocked the city of Baltimore for an extended period of time. A circuit judge refused to dismiss charges against those six officers. It also denied a request by defense lawyers who wanted the state's attorney for Baltimore City, Marilyn J. Mosby, removed from the case on the grounds of prosecutorial misconduct. Judge Barry Williams said he was troubled by some of what Ms. Mosby said at a news conference in May, but her comments do not rise, and I'm quoting the judge, do not rise to the level where the defendant's rights to a fair trial had been violated. Now, this was one of two pretrial sessions that will determine how the case goes forward. But it appears as though the defense is making Marilyn Mosby, the state's attorney for Baltimore, the issue. The judge seems not to have it. I mean, he did criticize her a bit, but he's not having that the case should be dis- the case against these officers should be dismissed or that she should be removed in prosecuting the case, which, by the way, is the right decision as far as I'm concerned. The people of Baltimore deserve justice, however that turns out to be. They deserve justice in the death of Freddie Gray. For those of you who have forgotten, they picked him up on a relatively trivial charge and trundled him into a van, and somehow a week later he was dead. Now, there isn't an allegation that he was beaten to death or you know, people brought out truncheons or whatever. He was arrested in April. Um, Ms. Mosby said that the cops arrested him without legal grounds. And after they shackled him, 
She said they flouted police rules and standards of decency by loading him into a police van without the required safety restraints and ignoring his pleas for help during a ride. He died a week later of a spinal cord industry, uh, injury. Why do I keep saying industry for injury? Of a spinal cord injury. So that is going to be a case that I think more than just Baltimore is going to be scrutinizing. It was, of course, and Baltimore is a city like Ferguson. I mean, it's, it's much larger than Ferguson, but it has a majority pop, uh, black population. Unlike Ferguson, it's got a black mayor, and it also has a history, as do many other cities across this country, of tensions between African Americans and the police. And, you know, I, I said my piece about this last week that there is going to have to, sooner or later, and I'm not talking about sensitivity training or whatever, there has to be a certainty of justice when African-Americans, unarmed African-Americans, as was Freddie Gray, end up dead at the hands of police. Too often, police end up walking away. We'll see what happens in this case. Now, there was another situation in Texas. This is beyond the one where the guy was shot with his hands up. It's a man accused of gunning down a Texas deputy at a gas station. When Shannon Miles was first arrested, local authorities in Texas, in Harris County, uh, and the, the... Uh, Shannon Miles stands accused of unloading a handgun on Harris County Sheriff's Deputy Darren Goforth. He was gassing up his cruiser last Friday. Um, At first, they blamed it on Black Lives Matter, which, of course, is utterly absurd. They're saying that, you know, they're riling people up. That's the reason why people are getting shot. Now, I find it interesting that no one ascribed the death of that Louisiana state trooper who was shot by a non-black person while he was helping him out. That case seems to have disappeared from national view. But the twist in this case is that Shannon Miles had apparently a history of mental illness. He was committed to mental health facilities twice in the past five years, according to his attorneys. He was treated at the Harris County Psychiatric Center in 2010 for unspecified reason and an uns- for an unspe- uh, unspecified amount of time. Two years later, he spent four months in a state mental hospital after an arrest at an Austin homeless shelter for aggravated assault with a deadly weapon. Now, the question for me and, of course, Shannon Miles, I shouldn't say, of course, Shannon Miles is black. The officer involved that was killed, Darren Goforth, was white. So in many cases, there is an attempt to racialize what happened here. I talked about that last week, too, how racialization happens so often when the alleged perpetrator of a crime is an African-American. But this situation where at first 
they blamed Black Lives Matter, but then had to backtrack when they realized the guy had a history of mental illness. The question ought to be, how does a guy with a history of mental illness end up with a gun? Time and time and time and time again. People with mental problems end up being able to access lethal firepower. And of course, nobody wants to talk about how that happens or how, more importantly, it can be prevented. See, because that's non-racial. I don't care who you're talking about. The question of how people with unstable histories, histories, end up with guns is something, you know, and that guy, uh, I saw a post somewhere, uh, the guy that was accused of killing the reporter and the photographer said, well, you know, he was an Obama supporter. So what? So what? (coughs) (coughs) Who you support politically has nothing whatsoever to do with a pathology that would lead you to kill another human being. I don't care who you support. It's time for us to get out of here. It's almost 7 o'clock. I want to thank Jesse and Jason and all the good folks at PRN in the studio. PRN Central in Midtown Manhattan. And keep listening to all the great programming here at the Progressive Radio Network. We will be back next Wednesday, 7 p.m., 6 p.m., excuse me, 6 p.m., God willing, and the creek don't rise. For the Mark Riley Show, I am Mark Riley. Have yourselves a great rest of the evening. Stay out the heat and have a better week ahead.